Okay, so let's look at Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, so the, this is called the primeval history. Um, Genesis can be broken up different ways. One of the ways is, is through the generation sort of formula, Toledoth formula. Toledoth is, is just translated as generation. So as you read through Genesis, you'll find these are the generations of the earth. Okay, that's the first one, the, the, the creation account. And I think there's 11 of them. So you could break Genesis up into 11 sections that way. Um, or you could break it up, Genesis 1 to 11, and then chapter 12 is, is Abraham. So Genesis 1 to 11, and then 12 to 50 is, is sort of the story of Israel now, with Abraham as the patriarch. Uh, or else you could break it up, Genesis 1 to 11, and then 12 to 36, and then chapter 38, I think it is. So 37, and then 39 to 50 deal with Joseph, which is very interesting. When we get there next week, Lord willing, that Joseph takes up nearly a third of Genesis as one, one person. So that already should tell us something important about Joseph and when we think about Jesus as well. Okay, so Genesis 1 to 11. And Genesis 1, you know, that is a controversial passage, uh, not just between Christians and non Christians over the whole origins debate. Um, did God make us? Did He make us in, in six literal days? So this is where, even amongst Christians, there's debate. Okay, was it six literal days? Or is it a day age? Does each day represent a, a long period of time? Um, or is it just poetry and it's, it's not actually true at all? So this is genre. Now, is this just poetry and it's got nothing to do with what actually happens? Just sort of a, a nice way of telling us that it happened, but it actually happened through evolution. Uh, these are sort of uh, the debates amongst Christians as well. And there are, yeah, there are, are good people in, in each position, but I, I don't see how they reach the other positions. So let's start verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So, that's how the Bible begins. It doesn't begin with a sort of an apologetic, a defense of God's existence, or anything like that, some sort of cosmological argument, or anything like that, for God's existence. It just begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God's got nothing to prove. He just made everything. <laughs> Uh, and uh, he, he, he noticed that it's the beginning, in the beginning. So, you know, sometimes we say, you know, a billion years before the world began, God existed. It's just not true. There was no time before the beginning. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's, we can't comprehend that, but God is, is above time and outside of time. So there was no time before he's, he made it, but in the beginning. That's why Jesus is also God, because Jesus existed in the beginning. If you exist at the beginning, it means you're eternal. Okay? Does that make sense? It means you're outside of time. And so therefore, Jesus is, is also God. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we have force, we have time, we have force, and we have matter, the earth, the heavens and the earth. 
But then we're told the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So it's a very depressing picture, this, this original creation, isn't it? Uh, we tend to sort of focus on the, the beauty of creation, but that's after the six days when it's teeming with wildlife and birds and fish and trees. And we're told it was very good. It must be uh, incredible. But that's not exactly how God initially created it. He created it covered in water. Okay, so notice it says that. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then we're told, the waters, face of the waters. So the whole earth was covered in water. It was flooded. There was no light, darkness. Now, again, as you go through Scripture, so this is, this is called Biblical Theology. I know it's a bit confusing, the name, because you say, isn't, you know, Biblical Theology, that's just theology about the Bible. Uh, but it's biblical theology as opposed to systematic theology. So, uh, just quickly, systematic theology is trying to systematize the teachings of the Bible. So, it's saying, okay, what does the Bible teach about angels? What does the Bible teach about God? What does it teach about the Holy Spirit? What does it teach about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? What does it teach about anything? And so, it says, so let's say angels, so we start in Genesis and Revelation and we go through and we find a little teaching here about angels, so we, we put that in our circle. Teaching here about angels, and here about angels, here about angels, here about angels, and at the end about angels. And we systematize that whole, we put them all together. So we say, from everything the Bible says about angels, angels are supernatural beings, they're not God, they're above humans for a period of time, there are fallen angels, there are elect angels, they, they, they look after us, they're ministering angels, the good ones, they can appear as human beings. Okay, so we, we can sort of we systematize a teaching of the Bible. Biblical theology should end in the same place, but it works differently. What biblical theology does is, say for example with, with angels, it follows the theme of angels all the way through Scripture as a thread. Okay? And, see, and watch as how it, what we call progressive revelation as you get more and more information. But it's following more how it flows as a thread. So if you were to follow the thread of the imagery of the sea and waters, you would find sort of two things. The one you would find is that the sea is often used as a reference to God's judgment and to chaos. Remember how scared the disciples were uh, in the boat. For, for us, you know, we all like, let's go to the beach for our holidays. You know, people of the Bible, that was not their, you know. <laughs> they were more bush people. Okay? They would go to Kruger. <laughs> uh, the, the sea was foreboding because there was darkness. They didn't know what was down there. They didn't know. It was a picture of, of, of fear and chaos and often judgment. Think of the flood. Think of the Red Sea closing in on the Egyptians. But then at the same time, it's also is, is, is sometimes used as a picture of the nations. So, as a, as a large group of people, it's often called a sea. So, here we have this picture of sort of chaos and darkness, foreboding. There's no form. There's nothing beautiful. It's, it's, it's void. It's empty. It's not a pretty picture at all. 
But we are told that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. And then we go into day one, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity are involved in creation. You can find verses showing here we've got the Spirit involved in creation. We know that the Father creates, and we know the Son creates. Remember, Colossians tells us that. So all three of the Trinity are involved in creation. And something beautiful is made. Okay. Now, again, we're, watch, we're looking for threads, we're looking for themes. And we're seeing right here the theme of creation. God creating, creation. But if we follow that theme of creation through, we start to see God does these new creations as well. So even here we can see a little picture of, because the, the, the New Testament authors will link conversion, salvation, to creation. Paul will do it in, in Corinthians. God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has also shone light of the gospel into our hearts. So it's a, it's a frequent theme, a motif. They will link spiritual regeneration, new creation being made alive to what happened at the beginning. So, just think if you go back to your BC days before you were a Christian, this, that could explain your life, isn't that right? Chaos, darkness, no beauty, no direction, void, meaningless, empty. That's, that's a picture of a person before the Lord has mercy upon them. And who is it that makes us spiritually alive? Which, which person of the Trinity does it? The Holy Spirit. Okay. It's the Spirit who comes and regenerates us, again, as He was here. And so, we're going to see these themes appear. We're going to see it with Noah. Noah, there's a new creation going on there, a new start. Uh, the Exodus is a new start. And notice there's water involved. Okay. And we can also go to baptism. Okay. These are all these threads. You can start to see these, these little threads all the way through Scripture. Um, and Peter even links baptism to the flood, doesn't he? Okay, so uh, hope you, I love biblical theology. I, I enjoy systematic theology. It's what I lecture at, at seminary, and it was my first love until I found out about biblical theology. <laughs> uh, so I, I love that. I love seeing all these strands through through Scripture. Now. It's important for us to remember Moses was not, he, he wasn't writing to a 21st century audience, was he? He wasn't saying, well, let me write to people who believe in evolution. That wasn't his audience. Who was his audience? The Jews. Which Jews? Yes, just being delivered out of Egypt. Now, uh, were those Jews in Egypt, were they all very zealous for God and holy? And No, they didn't even know God's name. Remember that. They had to ask Him. Um, they, they, they had been in bondage for 400 years. And they had been severely influenced by the pagan worldviews. Uh, so Moses is writing to that audience. And he's certainly confronting the pagan creation myths. And we know some of them. Uh, we have the Enuma Elish, sort of a, a Babylonian account of creation. 
and all the other accounts of creation always involved violence. It would be a fight between gods. And uh, they would, in the Enuma Elish, it's Marduk who kills Tiamat and uses his body to make earth. Okay. <laughs> uh, and humans are sort of created as slaves for the gods. So all the creation myths are, are violent and the earth is not good and humans are, are not good. The gods are tyrants, and all of these pictures are that's what comes out. So imagine you're in you've been influenced by that worldview, and then you read Genesis 1 for the first time. It's totally different, isn't it? There's no fighting between any gods, there's no violence in creation. And when it's created, it's all good. And human beings are created in the image of God, so they have incredible value. They're not just the slaves of some tyrant or something like that, but they're made in it. The image of God. And so there's these six days of creation at the end of uh, nearly every day the Lord says it's good and right at the end he says it's very, it was very good. And so the argument is is it literal or is it not literal? Some people say it's poetry. Uh, I think if you have a King James Bible they don't put the indentations for poetry. You know, the, when, you, when you read in some Bibles when you go to the Psalms, it will have the scansion, they call the scansion, indentation, so that you can see it's poetic. Uh, but when you read Genesis, you don't see that, do you? So I, I'm, not, I'm not persuaded at all by the view that this is poetry. It seems like narrative to me. Straight narrative. It's just telling us what happened. Another thing that's, that's a real clincher for me is that uh, in in uh, Exodus 20 and in uh, num- Numbers chapter 5, Deut- Deuteronomy 5, yeah, you get the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, and there's a slight difference in the Fourth Commandment between each one of them. Uh, they're both saying, keep the Sabbath day, but the one is saying, you were slaves, but now you're free, so you must keep the Sabbath. But the one account says... In six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh, He rested, and that's a pattern for you. Now, that's didactic genre. Remember what He said? Didactic is not, you don't have to look for a mystical meaning or a hidden meaning or anything like that. It's just clear. So, when Moses gets the Ten Commandments, it wouldn't make any sense if it was all, you know, that's just poetry, actually. The didactic passage is saying, God worked for six days, and on the seventh, He rested. Everyone could have been saying, yeah, but he didn't really. It was millions of years, you know. <laughs> uh, God uses that pattern six days and the seventh he rested. And so, in a didactic passage, it's, re- it's, re- it's reinforced again. That's a literal six days. And um, God created everything in six days. Uh, in John Calvin's day, he had a different fight. People were arguing that God created the everything quicker than six days. And he was trying to argue, you know, it was six days. Now we have people arguing the other way, and it's longer than six days. Um, To me, it's it's there. Six days, God created. Created everything. Um, It seems to follow a pattern forming and filling, we don't have time to go into it, but day one he forms a sphere, day two he forms a sphere, whether it's the sky or the water or the land, and then three is the filling of sphere one, four is the 
filling of sphere two and four, sorry four five and six of the fill, filling of sphere one two and three okay so forming and filling but if you go through it you'll notice there's a re repetition of the word separate God separates separates water on the earth and water above the earth okay so that's also very interesting that there's water placed or water canopy placed above the earth um, at creation uh, which then comes down at the flood uh, and again scientifically that can be proven if it's at the right distance it will hold uh, and there's also I mean these are this is not biblical we hypothesize uh, could be also a reason why people live so much longer because it, what ages us most is, is the sun's rays so if there was a, a barrier of water around, um, anyway, there's lots of, that's just you know, extra stuff. It's not in the Bible. I mean, there's the, the water around is in the Bible, but those theories are not in Scripture. Also, what the light would look like, it could have been quite amazing, light refracted through water. So uh, They also say that the oxygen content would be much higher. Uh, and you know dinosaurs, you know lizards, cold-blooded reptiles, they, they never stop growing. Okay, so if they, if they had much higher oxygen content and not so much sun, they could just carry on to be dinosaurs. Okay. Um, those are all just throwing them out there. You can, <laughs> you can Google. <laughs> okay. Okay, so then on the sixth day, God creates man. And man is the only one who's made in the likeness of God. And again, there's a lot of ink spilt as to what that means. But the New Testament tells us that as believers, we must put on the likeness of God, be renewed, be changed, become more and more like God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So those are aspects of the image of God. But I think in the context here, God is creating everything and that mankind, men and women, are created to be creative. God is a creating God and we are in His image. So whether it's creating a table, um, a little thing with Lego, a toy with Lego, a cake, um, the Eiffel Tower, uh, whatever. So it's, that's part of the mandate God has given us to take dominion, to, to bring order out of chaos. Okay? teach my children that. That's what they do with their bedroom. Bring order out of chaos. You, <laughs> you, you're uh, taking dominion over your room. Uh, okay, then on the seventh day God rests and he, he makes that day holy. And so um, There's no reason why any, any of these... These are creation ordinances. So marriage... Um, Work, um, rest, recreation, they're all creation ordinances. They're, you could say, sort of supra-cultural. Cultural. They're not Jewish or anything like that. They're given at the beginning. So they're still binding on mankind. Does that make sense? They're not, they're not done away with. It's, it's still there. Okay, so it's... it's vital that you rest one day in seven. Okay. Um, it's a command. The 
at the French Revolution because they hated Christianity. I think it's Robespierre said that you know the revolution is only complete when the last priest is strangled by the entrails of the last king. Okay. <laughs> Really nice guys, lovely people. <laughs> um, they said we're rejecting the seven day week because the seven day week only comes from the Bible. It doesn't come from any the months and years come from movement of the planets and stars and all of those things. But you won't find a seven day you can say, well, oh the star the stars in that position, it's the end of our week. It's just from scripture, the seven day week. So they said, we're rejecting that, and they went for a 10-day week, which I would never have done. If I was in the French Revolution, I would have gone for like a two-day week, you know, with <laughs> one and a half days off. But uh, anyway, it didn't work, and they went back to a seven-day week. So uh, God then makes Adam, and he, he takes him from the ground, and then he points him back to the ground to care for the garden. Okay? So he's taken from the ground, pointed back to the ground, and he's given this mandate, and he... This is another important theme um, of the temple. Um, the Garden of Eden is a temple. Not to say that there's a building like a church building or thing, but it's a temple because it's where God meets with humanity. And also, the words that are used in chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work it and keep it. Those two words are applied to the priests. On many occasions, okay. So, the, the Adam is in a in a temple, and he's a priest there to protect it and look after to look after Eve. Uh, when she comes, only called Eve after the fall, she's called woman before the fall. Um, so she's he, he's to look after her and protect her and look after this God in this temple area where God will come and meet with them. That's why when we get to the temple, that Solomon's temple, what are all the engravings and all the... Do you remember? What are all the designs in the temple? Palm trees, pomegranates, lions. It's all... It's garden. Okay. It's like making it as though it were a garden. Okay? Uh, because it's... It's a reminder of the Garden of Eden when God was with His people. And then when we come to the New, to Revelation, again, the city of God is, is the trees and rivers and all these things. Okay, so that's a theme. Temple theme is an important, very, very important theme that we're going to keep coming back to. Um, but Adam is, is alone. There is no appropriate helper for him. And so the Lord puts him to sleep and takes a, a rib from him and creates Eve. And so Eve is taken from Adam and then the Lord points Eve back to Adam. Okay, so again, the roles in marriage, male headship and the wife supporting the husband in his calling, are not after the fall. It's not as though it's some evil thing that God, you know, because of sin you're going to have to submit to your husband. Uh, it, was, it was always there. And it has nothing to do with, with essence or value. Men and women are of exactly the same value. Remember, who does the Lord Jesus submits to the Father, doesn't he? Is he less God? The Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. Is he less God? So, submission does not mean inequality. 
Okay? Contrary to what the world will tell us, uh, it just doesn't mean that at all. In fact, to submit is, is divine. So, uh, there's this beautiful picture here. That we're told then, uh, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so, the King James has leaving and cleaving. And that's where pretty much most marriage problems come from. Either a lack of leaving. So the leaving is not geographical. It's not saying, well, okay, we're married now. Let's move away from our parents. Um, it's, so it's not geographical. It's, it's in terms of headship. Okay, you start in a new family with a new head. A new nuclear family. Uh, many traditional cultures are very patriarchal, aren't they? The grandfather sort of oversees the whole family. Um, that's unbiblical. Okay. It's, there's a new family, and there's new, a new head, and so there can be problems either way. We're you know, always running back to the parents. Um, now, I think it's more difficult for the wife, because especially if you had a you know, really wise and honorable father, and <laughs> now you married a guy who's 20, 30 years younger, who's a bit of an idiot, he um, doesn't have the experience he doesn't have the knowledge all of those things now you've got to submit to this guy when you know your dad was so amazing and so wise and, uh, but if he's a really wise dad he'll just push you back to your <laughs> to your husband but that can be a very difficult thing then the other problem can be the cleaving okay the coming coming together cleaving to to one another and then there's this last verse, verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then we go into chapter 3 about the fall. But verse 25 is, is a very, very important verse. Um, it, it, uh, it actually might be one of the most important verses in the chapter, but it's almost like a throwaway statement, isn't it? They were naked and they were not ashamed. Uh, one, one guy talking about this verse, he spoke about Steve Jobs the founder of, of Apple, one of the founders of Apple. And I don't know if you ever saw any of his presentations. He's, he's passed away a few years ago. But he would, they would have these big Apple conferences and thousands of people would come and then he would do his presentation and he would say, this is what we're doing with you know, iOS 5 or whatever. Or, um, and these are the plans that we've got and this is what's going on. And, and then he would sort of start to walk off stage and then he would say, oh yeah, one other thing, here's the new iPhone, or whatever. <laughs> and everyone would go crazy, because that's actually what they, they came to see. The last thing that he mentioned was the most important thing. And so, this, this verse is actually incredibly important. They were naked and they were not ashamed. And that's all going to change radically when sin enters into the world, and we live with those consequences. Uh, and this is a major theme, another major theme, this theme of shame. Okay. And I think it's, it's an area that Westerners don't really deal with. Okay. Uh, sociologists have sort of divided the world up. It's, it's generalizations, but again, generalizations are generally true. Uh, uh, Western people with a Western mindset are worried more about uh, guilt and right and wrong. Um, so that's Western. Um, Eastern or 
you know, Eastern worldview is what worried more about honor and shame. And then an African worldview is more power and fear. Now, in Eastern, that's, that's the world that the scriptures are written in. Okay? Israel um, and Abraham coming from Ur, the East, all those. So, as, if you're influenced by the West, we rejoice, and rightfully so, we, we rejoice in the atonement of Jesus Christ. We're guilty, broken God's law, we deserve hell, but Jesus took our place. And we should rightfully rejoice in that. And that's exactly, the Bible does teach that. Paul's letter to the Romans is, is is clear, but notice he's writing to the West okay, when he writes that. Um, but shame is, is, is something that, that can stay with you a lot longer. So again, uh, it's Ed Welch, he gives the example. Guilt is the idea of a courtroom. Okay? That sort of guilt, guilt thinking, if you imagine a courtroom. Shame is more being naked in the courtyard. Okay, uh, that, that's shame where you just want to flee, you just want to get away. And there's a strong argument to be made that actually the bigger theme in Scripture is shame. Okay. That there, there's a lot of shame as you go through Scripture. There are um, people who are sick and rejected. People who are not married and rejected. People who can't have children and are rejected. And it's those people that the Lord goes after, doesn't He? And he meets with them. Uh, all the shame in those, especially in those traditional cultures, that they, they bear. And of course, the shame of one's sin. You can be forgiven for your sin, but still not realize that you still have the consequences of the shame of that sin. Uh, and that's why when you come to the, the Gospels and the cross, it's noteworthy that the focus is not so much on the pain of Jesus that he experienced, but his shame. That he's rejected, that he's stripped naked, that he's mocked and spat upon and abused. They're you know, all shameful things that, it, that happened to him. There's so much shame involved. It, it, it's the main focus of the Gospel writers because he takes our shame upon himself. So the Gospel meets all of these. Of course, power and fear. Of course, Christ is in control of everything, isn't he? And he's able to set us free from our fears. But here, they were naked and there was no shame. But they're going to sin, and then they, they, they've got their fig leaves, and they're trying to cover themselves, but they're hiding away. Uh, and the Gospel comes and says, well, he was naked, so we can be clothed with, with his righteousness. Okay, so we know the account of the fall. The, the devil comes as a serpent, able to walk and talk at this stage, it seems. We're told it's the devil in the book of Revelation, that old serpent, the devil. And he's, he questions, did God actually say? And he said that, he says, uh, you will be like God. That's what he tells Eve, you will be like God. So what's the irony there? She's already like God. She's made in the image of God. What is she? She just said, well, no. Go away, I'm already like God. Um, but what does she do? She, these uh, verbs are, we see them throughout Scripture again. She saw, 
She saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and she took the fruit. So we'll see that sort of seeing and saying it's good, this is good, and taking. Okay, it's going to come up a few more times in, in Scripture. Um, now, Adam was, was right there with her. He wasn't, as one pastor said, he wasn't away playing golf. Okay? <laughs> Sometimes we think he was, but he, he was actually there because it's a plural you in the Hebrew. So the serpent says, uh, you, did God actually say you shall not eat? And then look what Eve does in verse 6. B. She took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So you see already Adam's reneging on his responsibilities to, to protect her and uh, care for the garden. Okay, uh, What Matthew Henry said, those of you who have done it will know the quote, but he said he was taken from the rib of Adam, uh, not from his head to rule over him, and not from his foot for him to trample over her, but from under his arm, next to his heart, for him to protect her and to love her. Okay, so Matthew Henry, the commentator, it's a beautiful picture. But he's not doing that here. He's not caring for her. Uh, he eats, and they realize that they're naked. And then we see the consequences of sin. They start blaming one another. They're not taking responsibility. He says, it's the wife, it's the woman. That you gave me. Okay, so he blames God and her. She blames the serpent. Uh, there's, a, there's shame, there's fear, there's no more integrity. And then there's the consequences of sin. Um, the serpent is cursed. Verse 15, I'll put enmity between, now he's talking to the, the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, we now introduce that, that we're told there's going to be two lines, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The, this is not any weird, weird thing. I know there's some, some sects, cults, that sort of believe that the devil slept with Eve and she had babies and that's the serpent line or anything like that. It's not, it's just a... Remember, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. And all that means, in, especially in Hebrew worldview, sorry, that you're in the character. You're in the character of someone. Okay, You're behaving like the devil. So the children of the devil are those who, who will follow the devil and behave like him. Uh, the, the seed of the woman will be those who follow God's people. Okay? But there's going to be this clash, and it continues to this day, between those who follow God and those who follow the devil. Now, very few people, you, know, you get a few people who paint pentagrams on stuff, but um, very few people would say, I'm a follower of the devil. Uh, but the reality is, if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, that's exactly what you are. Uh, whether you realize it or not, then you're following the devil, you're of your father, the devil. So that battle still continues to this day. But notice the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Which is quite a remarkable thing. The Lord has to, to bring enmity between us and the devil. Otherwise, we would be buddies with the devil, naturally. Okay. God has to step in and say, I'm going to 
create friction here between you two. And that's what happens at salvation. God has to, He steps into our lives and says, okay, no, you're not going that way anymore. I'm going to create enmity between you and the, and the devil. But here we have what theologians call the proto-euangelion, or the prototype, the first gospel. So there's this promise of someone who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent and make things right again. Okay. At this stage, they don't know he's actually going to make it better than it was before. So as Augustine said, we lose, sorry, we gain more in Christ than we lost in Adam. Okay, so it's going to, we're going to get much more than just going back to the Garden of Eden. It's going to be much, much greater. Um, we're not even going to be naked anymore in eternity. They'd say, oh no, God's restoring paradise. Well, it's going to be much better. We're going to have robes and all of these things. God is creating something even better. So... Uh, if you were reading this for the first time, you should be, from now on, on the lookout for a serpent crusher. Okay? Someone who's going to come and make things right. So I know it's difficult because we know the story, and I don't know Jesus is Jesus. Um, but, you know, pretend you're reading it for the first time, and you, you're excited, you're looking for... Remember, that's what they were, they were doing. They were, for centuries, millennia, they're looking for someone who's going to come and make things right. And we're going to see, as I said, these little, these little prototypes, these little shadows, we're going to see these, these great people rise up. You think, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the guy. Maybe it's Noah. Right. Uh, and then we, we keep looking. Okay. But here's the good news. There is someone coming who's going to make things right. And Eve believes this promise. Okay? Because when she falls pregnant in chapter 4... She says, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Okay, she says, this is it. She believes this is the one. She's, she's very much mistaken, but I believe we'll see Adam and Eve in heaven. Um, I believe there's, there's evidence of faith. They believe God. And again, it just shows God's, God's grace. Remember, God said, the day you eat of it, you will die. And it's different ways of dying, but they weren't wiped out. Okay. Then there's consequences to, the, to Adam and to Eve because of their sin. To Eve, there's going to be pain in childbearing. And I don't think that just means you know, it's going to be physically painful to have children, to give birth. Uh, I think it's more than that. Just having children will bring pain into your life. Okay? And I'm sure most mothers can testify to that. Uh, and you see that even with, uh, with Mary, don't you? Mary is told, Jesus is going to, your heart is going to be pierced through with many sorrows, okay, because of Jesus. Not that Jesus was rebellious or anything like that, but because he's going to suffer so terribly. But it's one of the consequences of the fall, I think, is that, that children can hurt their parents. And that, you know, dads are like, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, it hurts the, the mother more, I think, from this passage. And then he says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So again, that is not, it's not sort of, oh, your desire will be for your husband, uh, like a romantic desire or anything like that. Um, nor is it saying, you know, having a desire for men, that's part of the curse or something like that. It's not saying that. The way the word desire is used here, it's used again in chapter 4, when Cain brings an offering that's not acceptable to God. 
and God doesn't accept his offering, and Cain is upset, and the Lord says to him, why are you upset? He says to him, if you do well, you'll be accepted, but sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. Now, now the, Lord, the Lord is not saying sin wants to be close to you and it loves you. It wants to rule over you. So, I mean, this is just the other side of what Paul is saying in, in Ephesians. The, the husbands will battle to love their wives, and wives will battle to submit to their husbands. That's where, that's why Paul, there's not a lot of teaching on marriage, but those are the issues that the Bible brings up. And here it's part of the curse. One of the consequences of sin coming into the world is that the wife will want to control over them, over the husband. Uh, and then he will rule over her, which again is not sort of godly headship. It's the idea of, of more abusive control. Okay? Which again we see, we see both of those, don't we? Um, uh, then there's consequences in terms of what he was called to. He was called to look after the garden, but now it's cursed. It's going to yield thorns and thistles. And he's going to eat his bread by the sweat of his face. And then he's just going to die. Okay? That's, that's the consequences of sin. And again, you could sit there and you could say, sure, it's a bit overboard, isn't it? I mean, we've got other passages that tell us that the whole universe was cursed because of sin. Uh, and if you say... You know, it was an apple that he ate. You know, it's like, isn't that a bit of, you know, isn't that a bit overboard? It's like, you know, going 80, 85 in an 80 zone and like your whole family's wiped out, you know, in a shooting room by a firing squad. It seems overkill. Like, I mean, they just took a bite of a fruit. I mean, really, it's such a big deal that, that the whole universe is cursed and all of humanity is now plunged into death and chaos and turmoil. But you see, if you have that perspective, you don't realize who gave the command. Um, and it's a very interesting command that God gave. It's a real command that tests one's obedience, because it's not a moral command, is it? The Ten Commandments are moral commands. Okay? It's never right to, to murder someone. Okay? So that's important. Notice what I'm saying. There are times when it's right to, to kill someone in the in self-defense, that's another discussion, but but it's never right to just cold-bloodedly murder someone. It's never right. But is it are there times when it's fine to eat a fruit? Yeah. It's it's sort of like telling my children to go to bed at eight o'clock. It's propositional law. It's not it's not a moral command. It's not binding on all families on the planet or something like that. I just I made that up and they must obey that. They must go to bed at eight o'clock. And so the Lord says, you cannot eat of this fruit. It's a, it's, a, it's a law that's going to get to the very heart of whether they're going to obey, because it doesn't seem to make any sense. You can eat all the other fruit, but not this one. But you see, he's just testing, Do you, will you really obey me? Okay. And they don't. They reject his, his lordship. So Cain and Abel are born, and they offer these sacrifices, and Abel's is accepted. Again, the Lord must have given them some instruction about sacrifices and what he expects. Okay? Because they're doing it and the Lord's upset with Cain. So again, he wouldn't be upset with them if Cain didn't know what to do. Uh, Job is offering sacrifices. And again, we think Job is super ancient. Before, before um, Moses. 
before Abraham, maybe a peer of Abraham, so before any sort of law is given about what you must do. But the Lord must have given some instructions about sacrifices. Abel gives the first fruit. So this is where what it seems to be the difference. Whereas Cain doesn't give the first fruit. The first fruit is not the best. It's really your profit. So Cain probably brought the fruit and veg that were past its sell-by date. You know, that's what he, he brought to God. It wouldn't cost him, really. And so the Lord's not happy with him. But then he says to him, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. So if you're reading for the first time, you go through it and you think, oh, that's great. I wonder what's going to happen to Abel because, you know, he did the right thing. You know, maybe the Lord's going to give him a nice house or um, it's going to go really well for Abel because he did the right thing. And then what happens to old Abel? He gets killed by Cain, doesn't he? Hmm. But Lord, I thought you said if you do what's right, you'll be accepted and there'll be blessing. And then you might be thinking, well, Cain's really going to get it now. I think God's just going to strike him with a lightning bolt because now he's done two evil things. And what does God do to Cain? Protects him, doesn't he? Puts a mark on him and says, if anyone hurts you, it's going to be really bad for them. So it's totally mind-boggling. What on earth is going on? We're so used to Cain and Abel, I think we just we don't realize how shocking it is. But it doesn't make any sense. It seems the good guy, and Lord, you said, good, if people do what's good, they'll be accepted. The good guy gets murdered. And then the bad guy you protect. So either God's a liar, or else it's pointing us beyond this life. And I hope you understand that it's pointing us beyond this life. God is not a liar. Uh, everything will be sorted out. Abel has been perfectly happy for thousands and thousands of years. Justice has been, has been served. Um, so, a tough life here is not a sign necessarily that God is against you, nor is a, is a happy, healthy, wealthy life a blessing that God is for you either. It's whether you know Him, whether you obey Him and love Him. That's, that's what's key. Okay, from that time, I mean, already it's just a... It's not as though, you know, their child, their first son became a drug addict and then, you know, their great-great-grandson was a murderer. It's like, straight to murder. The downfall is, is, is horrific. And it continues to get worse and worse. So that you even have this man, Lamech, writing poetry about how he beats up little kids. Um, so it, it becomes horrific till eventually the Lord says, the thought and the intents of man's hearts are only evil continually. And he says, I've got to stop this. It's like purging a cancer that's spread across the whole planet. And he, he saves one man and his family, Noah, finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he saves him. And he puts him in this, uh, he builds this ark. Uh, and again, there's lots of interesting things there. I don't know if we really have time. No, we don't have time. But uh, lots of pointers towards Christ and the ark and all of these things. Again, there's a flood, which reminds us of what? Creation, Genesis 1. Um, but there are people who are preserved. And then there is this wind that blows. Remember that? The wind that blows. The Lord causes the wind to blow. And that dries up the water and the boat is secured. But in the Hebrew, the word for spirit and wind is the same word. Ruach. 
Okay, so again, we've got the world flooded and again we have the spirit. Okay. And again, it's a new creation, isn't it? It's a new beginning. It's another beginning with a new, new humanity. Noah, you know, the Lord's starting again with Noah and we're getting the same themes. The Holy Spirit, water. Okay, so there's, there's the same themes. So you could be hoping at this time, maybe Noah, Noah is the, is the guy. But what happens to Noah? It shows us he's not the guy. He gets drunk, doesn't he? And uh, he has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that's where, oh, I don't have time to draw a world map, but the Japheth, the Japhetic tribes, so yeah, he wanted to see my maps again. <laughs> um, not allowed to take photos. And, uh, <laughs> copyright. <laughs> Unless they get royalties. Um, uh, the Japhetic tribes, they go north and west. So that's, let's say, your European tribes. The uh, Shem is your Semitic. So that's the eastern, going east. And then Ham is coming down south, the African <coughs> tribes. Okay, So... Um, this is important, especially in, in the context of South Africa. Remember, it's Ham who comes and exposes his, his nakedness. And for many years, I don't know where it started, but often, I think it's sort of almost become an idiom at one stage, um, and, and, a, and a biblical justification for slavery, uh, racial-based slavery, and apartheid. Saying, see, Ham, the African tribes were cursed by God. So it's, it's biblical. Okay. But when you read the passage, Ham is not cursed, is he? Who is cursed? It's, uh, it's chapter 9, verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son had, what his youngest son, Ham had done to him. It's not there. It doesn't say Ham, but it is. It's Ham. He said, Cursed be Canaan. The servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So Canaan is cursed, not Ham. Okay? The Canaanites are cursed. Uh, and they're wiped out. They're no more Canaanites. Okay? Uh, God judged them uh, when the Jews took the land of Canaan. Okay, so... Again, uh, one's presuppositions, reading what one wants to see because of one's prejudices, but it's just a challenge to us to read the Bible carefully. Okay, so um, we come now to chapter 11. There's, there's all these people on the planet, but the Noahic covenant, so God made a renewed a covenant with Noah which basically said the same things that the Lord said to Adam. Go into the planet, be fruitful, multiply, take dominion, all of these things. But there's one addition that's made, or two actually, but the main one is, is if someone takes another person's life, then they forfeit their life. So really the death penalty is instituted to prevent the world from continuing down that path again. Okay? And again, the Noah covenant is also for all cultures. It's not just for the Jews. It's not the, you know, like the sacrificial system or something like that. So, uh, 
again, I would argue that biblical system would, would involve the death penalty okay, for murderers. Um, but there would be protections in place. The Bible is very clear, two or three witnesses. And in fact, those two or three witnesses would be the ones who would actually start the death process. So again, that would make that would sort of prevent, I think, if you had two or three credible witnesses. So it's not just hearsay or um, what's the other thing that's binding and that somebody can go to jail for the evidences. Anyway, you know what I mean. There's enough evidence to throw someone in jail, but there's no eyewitnesses. Okay. So if there's no eyewitnesses, no one can be put to death. Um, yeah, circumstantial. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they don't go out there, they don't obey God, but they all stay together. And they begin to build this tower up to their heavens, the Bible says. But it's, I don't think we have to believe that they were so silly that they thought they could reach reach God. It was just the, the idea of making a great name for themselves. So it actually says that. Verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. And so that's what they want to do. They want to make a name for themselves. And all, all religion, whether it's Christian or any other religion, that's the idea. Let's make a name for ourselves. Okay, everyone can see how good we are. That's why you see many religions are full of externals, aren't they? Okay. Let's make a big show of our prayer time. Let's make a big show of this and we don't eat this and we don't drink that and all of these things. So everyone, so you can make a name for yourself. Um, God comes down and He confuses the languages and brings separation so that they actually obey Him and go out and start to fill the planet. Okay, so... God actually, in His grace, brings division. Different cultures, different languages. Because the more, the more people are united, or a large mass of people are united, the, more, the greater the evil they commit. Okay. Unless they're united around the Lord Jesus. So, at Pentecost you see a reversal of this, don't you? When all the people with different languages come together and they can speak. And there's unity in Christ. And that's what it will be like in the new heaven and the new earth. All the cultures coming together, worshipping God and being united perfectly. Um, but often people strive for a unity that's not around Christ. And it's really just about making a name for oneself. And it's, it's, uh, it's very dangerous. So we're going to look at chapter 12. Uh, we'll start with chapter 12 to 50 next week. But I just want to read one verse or two verses quickly. So we end with the Gospel. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. You see, that's the difference between all religions and true Christianity. It's not us working ourselves up to God and making a name for ourselves. It's God coming down to us. And what does He say to Abram? I'll make it. I'll make your name great. Okay, and that's exactly what the Lord does to His people. He makes us great. He makes us more than conquerors. Um, but that's the good news. He comes down to us. We can never work our way to Him, but He comes down to us and, and has mercy upon us. Okay. Any questions or comments? Yes. If I was a new Muslim,
and some people to experience people that Joe asked me. First it was Adam and Eve, and then Cain and Abel, and then where did the rest come from? Because I think for if our union is with this, I know. Yes, you would think about that, yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, so the the Bible is very clear that Adam and Eve first human beings and they're the father, mother and father of everyone. So that's a New Testament teaching. Jesus teaches that. So they are the mother and father of everyone. So all their children intermarried. So say, so, oh, that's pretty weird or anything like that. But as you go through Scripture, it's only later on that God ins- institutes laws of not marrying post-family. Okay. At this stage, remember when Adam and Eve were created, there, there was no faults in their DNA. Okay, they were the most amazing specimens of humanity. Okay. Um, so the DNA was strong and there was no problem intermarrying amongst the children and they lived for hundreds of years and that's a, it's not, you know, well they say 900 years but it's not really 900. There's no reason to doubt that it's not 900 years. Okay, and so if they lived for hundreds and hundreds of years, you could have many, many children and so the population could grow quite quickly. Um, so that's when you, when you put together what the Bible does say, then, then there's no problem. It's weird to us now, but at that stage there wasn't any... Uh, it's, it's like the 8 o'clock bedtime law. Okay? It's not a moral thing, it's just God says, okay, the DNA is too messed up now. Your eyes will be too close together if you marry your... Uh, so, so you're saying that just because scripture mentions the three children of Adam and Eve doesn't mean that they're good. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, let me, I'll open the door next time, so it's a bit stuffy. Let me, let me close this in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time we could spend together in your word. I do pray, Holy Spirit, that uh, you would minister to each one of our hearts and if there's anything that was erroneous, that you would just um, block it from our minds, that it wouldn't do any damage. But whatever is true and honorable and right, that we would think on those things, that we would um, become more and more like your Son and, and that your peace would guard our hearts. Pray that you'd keep us safe as we travel and continue to be with us during this week that lies ahead. Help us to be salt and light and witnesses to those around us. And please bless the works of our hands. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.